Welcome to the Side Hustle to Small Business podcast powered by Hiscox. I'm your host, Sanjay Parikh. Throughout my career, I've had side hustles, some of which have turned into real businesses. But first and foremost, I'm a serial technology entrepreneur. In the creator space, we hear plenty of advice on how to hustle harder and why you can sleep when you're dead. On this show, we ask new questions in hopes of getting new answers. Questions like, how can small businesses work smarter? How do you achieve balance between work and family? How can we redefine success in our businesses so that we don't burn out after year three? Every week, I sit down with business founders at various stages of their side hustle to small business journey. These entrepreneurs are pushing the envelope while keeping their values. Keep listening for conversation, context, and camaraderie. While Swarab Ketrapal was creating tech startups in Silicon Valley and Austin, Texas, he was also advising his friends and colleagues on how to plan meaningful and individualized African safaris in his home country of Tanzania. After exiting his third tech startup, Sorab decided to combine his two passions, preserving African wildlife and entrepreneurial adventures into his nonprofit startup, Fair Trade Safaris. On today's show, we chat about Sorab's seasoned entrepreneurial journey, get into the nitty gritty of creating a nonprofit startup, and discuss how passion, philanthropy, and wildlife intersect at Fair Trade Safaris. Okay, uh, welcome to the podcast, Saurabh. Uh, I am super excited to have you on uh, with us. Um, let's just get right into it. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born or raised, uh, you know, background in terms of growing up. Sure. Um, so I was born in India. Um, uh, my family is from the northern part of India, the state of Punjab. And uh, when I was eight years old, our family moved from India to East Africa, uh, specifically to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And uh, I lived my formative years, um, early, child, uh, early adolescence and teenage years in the coastal city of Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Um, when I was 18, I came to the U.S. to a not very coastal, not very warm <laughs> state of Wisconsin, which is where I went to school. Uh, I got my undergrad degree in computer science and mathematics. And then obviously after I graduated um, with a bachelor's degree, um, moved to Silicon Valley and spent uh, about 20 years in Silicon Valley as a tech entrepreneur, uh, founded three different startups in that two decade period from uh, 1994 until 2014 when I left the Silicon Valley uh, permanently and moved to Austin, Texas. So, which is where I'm now. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the sort of geographical part of my life. Um, and then I'm sure we'll get into some of the other things that are more esoteric than the physical places I've lived in. So, okay. So, um, through your career, you've, you've done multiple entrepreneurial things and we're going to get into the, the current one, uh, fair, fair trade safaris here in a minute, but, um, it, it was that, you know, the first time you did a startup, was that the first time you did anything entrepreneurial or did you have something like when you were a kid that you, you were hustling and, and you did something uh, entrepreneurial then? No, I think, you know, my, my, it's just uh, something that was part of the course growing up in, in Africa. Um, unlike, um, you know, teenagers in America, it's not normal for 
you know, teenage, at least it was not uh, when I was growing up in my, my teenage years to, to do, you know, mow in you know, a grass or you do, you know, lawn maintenance or babysitting or anything like that. That was, or work at a McDonald's. We didn't have that. So yeah, I mean, right. I really started my entrepreneurial career uh, after I graduated and it was a, a year after I graduated. So I graduated in 93 and then started the company, a co-founder of the company in 95. So uh, there wasn't a whole lot of gap between graduation and then entrepreneurial life journey. So, uh, but that was the first time, which was starting a tech company in the middle of the, the Silicon Valley. So it, yeah. was, it was a hotbed of uh, innovation at the time and still is. But yeah, that was the first time I started any kind of venture on my own. Um, okay, so uh, as you're going through this, um, you've done this series of startups, uh, and then you, you've moved out of Silicon Valley. You came up with this idea of, of starting a new company, Fairtrade Safari. So tell us a little bit about Fairtrade Safaris. How did it get started, and why is it, why is it a thing? Yeah, I think that uh, um, I, you know, having grown up in Africa, I've always been really fascinated with and obsessed with almost uh, wildlife. Uh, particularly elephants. Um, so from a very young age, I've always loved elephants. Um, I remember we used to go on safaris and all the other kids my age would be like, I want to see a lion, I want to see a leopard. The cats <laughs> are obviously, you know, prized uh, sighting for right. you on a safari. For me, all, it was all about elephants. I just wanted to see elephants and be around elephants. Um, and then when I was, I think, uh, 10 years old, uh, there was a chance uh, meeting I had with uh, the great wildlife conservationist, uh, Jane Goodall. And wow. Jane Goodall was doing her research uh, in Tanzania uh, on the chimpanzee research. Um, and she happened to um, be at a place that I was there with my family and I was just completely gobsmacked and obsessed and just, I wanted to be her, you know, from a very young age. But clearly growing up in the Indian household that we do, <laughs> um, there's no way my parents would co-sign on me becoming a wildlife conservationist, right? I mean, so, um, but it was always, that seed was planted very, very early. This combination of me always loving animals. And I think kids in general love animals. Every, every child loves animals. So that wasn't the, that wasn't the sort of, I would say the, the, the small pebble that got rolling in my head. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that eventually became a boulder, I think. But I mean, that started when I met Jane Goodall, that this idea of I want to do something to protect wildlife. Um, and then obviously in the intervening years, I went to university and it was always there though. I loved animals. I was always obsessed with how do we protect these species that are in danger, especially. Um, and then when I saw my first startup, uh, I was 28 at the time. <clears throat> and it was, it was a fairly sizable exit. It was a nine-figure exit uh, of my first company. Um, after that exit happened, uh, obviously I created a, a trust and part of those trust funds were allocated to wildlife conservation. Initially, okay. my CPA said you should do this because there are some tax advantages to it, um, to having some money set aside for philanthropy or some kind of social impact nonprofit work. And he asked me, he's like, so is there anything that you're passionate about? I didn't have to think even for a second. I was like, yeah, <laughs> wildlife conservation. So I started 
doing the conservation work back in 2001, so over 20 years ago, just sort of providing uh, financial support to organizations primarily in Tanzania, which is my home country, and Kenya, that were doing elephant conservation. So this is 21 years ago. And in those 21 years, while we were still funding some of these organizations, these nonprofits, uh, we didn't have any boots on the ground. We were just stroking checks, really, to, for these nonprofits that were doing the good work on the ground. Um, I did two more startups. And then when I exited my third startup in 2014, um, as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you can relate, you know, there's this sort of mixed feeling you get of excitement, relief, catharsis when you exit something. But then yeah. soon after that comes the dread and anxiety. What am I going to do next? Do you know what I'm saying? It's like you're happy that you've got this success and you've reached uh, the, the top of the mountain. But then you're like, what next? What do I do with my time? I mean, how do I how do I you know, take this potential energy I have and put some kind of velocity behind. What do I do with this potential energy? I can't just sit here, right. you know, play golf or, you know, uh, watch yeah, television. Yeah, that's not fun. That's you you got to do something. And yeah, Exactly. It would drive me crazy. Um, right. So I remember in 2014, I had just uh, exited out of my third startup. And I think it was my, my subconscious, like, what next, Saurabh? What next? What next? What next? And I had... Uh, you know, while I was doing my startups, while I was doing my, my for-profit work, if you will, with the nonprofit work in the background, really, with this funding of uh, elephant conservation and uh, happening in the background, um, I was also helping people plan their safaris. I mean, fellow entrepreneurs, venture right. capitalists, professionals that were in my ethos, in my, in my space, in my world, in my social life, in my professional life. Anybody who wanted to go to Africa, they were like, Saurabh knows, you know, how to plan the best <laughs> safari. So I was sort of just doing this as a favor. And uh, I think those worlds sort of came together when, when one night I went to sleep. Uh, I think it was maybe a month after the, the, the exit. It was in 2014. And right. I went to sleep one evening and I woke up the, ne the next morning and I had just sort of epiphanous clarity, if that's a word. I was like, yeah. I know exactly what I'm going to do next, right? And I was married at the time, and I promised my ex-wife that I'm not going to do another tech startup. <laughs> yeah, so she had forbidden me from doing another tech startup. At that time, we had two children. We still have two kids. And she's like, you just don't, uh, you're not the same person that you are when you're, you know, in this space of like growth, 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 you know, you know meeting these metrics and Start, you're doing these tech startups that you do, you can't, you know, promise me this is your last one. So I promised her that. But see, there is this, you know, being the pedant I am, the, you know, I was like, I promise you no tech startups. That does not mean no startups at all. So I was like, I can do a nonprofit startup, right? So, so I, I there was this sort of, uh, asterisk, guess, little caveat asterisk, there. exactly. <laughs> and I leveraged that. You know, I was like, so I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a safari startup, a non-tech startup, which ends up amplifying the nonprofit work I'm doing. And yeah. it was the, the, the sort of the, that was really the, the genesis of the idea of a safari company that right. 
competes with all the other for-profit safari companies out there, but we distinguish ourselves that from, from the way we do uh, and having the profits go back into the, the nonprofit work. Right. So is, is the company itself, it is a, a registered nonprofit or have you set it up as a for-profit and just giving away the profits? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that as you know, um, the 501c3 said, I, I consider, uh, I mean, I'm making it a 501c3, right? Which is a nonprofit right. or a B Corp, um, uh, which yep. is another way of uh, really doing well and doing good, if you will. Uh, but they all have all of these requirements that Again, I don't like right. authority. I don't like following rules. I know when right. to have to do this every year above and beyond just filing taxes. I'm just like, I can't do that. You know, it's just not yeah. fun. So I was like, I'm just going to do an LLC and see where it goes. Let me just start off that way. So that's yeah. what the, you know, it was a quote unquote side hustle before the birth of the LLC in 2014. It was a side hustle in the sense that, you know, I was helping, uh, friends and professional contacts go to Africa right. and have a great experience. Um, there, so there but you was weren't no, getting paid for that. You were, you were just doing this as a favor for all of those folks. Correct. Correct. I wasn't okay. getting paid. Yeah. Um, I guess I was getting paid with lots of thank yous and, and wine right. bottles and, and, yeah. and thank you cards. And because anybody who goes to Africa and has a great experience, I mean, it's life changing. So I, yeah. I would get, you know, I would get all these kudos, but no, I wasn't getting any kind of financial compensation for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, I, I want to dig into this a little bit because I find this fascinating because I've thought about this same exact issue of the, the structural challenges of creating a nonprofit because it does really restrict what you're able to do, right? When you registered a, a 501c3 with the IRS, you have to tell them exactly the areas that you are going to work in and you are locked in at that point. So if at any point in time, you're like, wait, I could also do this. But if it's outside of your charter with the IRS, they could come back and say, like, now you're operating outside of what we you said that you were going to do. And this is no longer a charitable thing and it's not a nonprofit anymore and, you know, cascading effects. So um, I find it super interesting that you, you've gone down this path. How well has that worked for you? I mean, has there been challenges of trying to run a, a for-profit company as basically as a nonprofit, but without the stamp of that? No, actually, it's it's it's, it's uh, uh, quite frankly, we don't have any donors per se, so we're right. not out there raising money, and we never have. I've never gone out and tried to raise money from donors, um, you know. So, and I'm not very good at that. I mean, I can raise money <laughs> from venture capitalists and, and angel right. investors, but because there's a there's a very very solid quid pro quo, I can you know you get in a return on your investment. And it's going to be a darn good investment. Um, right. I'm not really good at, so I'm really sort of appealing to their greed when I'm raising money. Hey, give me a dollar, <laughs> I'll give you five back in three years, right? Five X in three years or three X, whatever it is. Um, right. But I'm not very good at saying, give me a dollar and pulling your heartstrings and you're going to save an elephant or put a child through school. It's not really in my DNA. So, I mean, not having a 501c3 was not an impediment in doing what we set out to do, what I set out to do when I started this Fair Trade Safaris in 2014, because I don't have any donors. Uh, right. uh, you know, uh, all the money that we raise is either directly from the profits of the um, business operations, selling safaris and trips, amazing, fantastic luxury trips to Africa, um, uh -huh. taking, or 
really getting our uh, clients who go on these trips to go on these trips and really be moved enough to be like, no, I'm going to support this, you know, this school in in uh, um, Moshi, Tanzania, or I really want to support the Sheldrick Foundation that that brings you know orphan elephants who's you know into rehabilitation and. So a lot of our clients get moved enough to actually be like, you know what, I'm going to support this organization that Fair Trade Safaris also supports, and Fair Trade Safaris facilitated me to learn about, visit, and really be affected by. So I, I'm going to voluntarily be supporting these organizations. So we right. don't have donors. Um, so we do a lot of in-kind donations of safari packages to organizations that raise money. So it hasn't been an issue. I mean, we're an LLC and um, I like it that way. Okay. Um, super fascinating. I, I, I think um, this is a, an interesting area and um, you, you basically, this structure has forced you into uh, making sure that you're a, a sustainable business, a sustainable nonprofit in some ways, right? A lot of nonprofits are, are 100% reliant on donor, uh, donor uh, kind of, happiness and, and giving and, and all of that. And then when we have big issues like a pandemic or whatever, um, it really causes, causes problems. So let's talk a little bit about then how you structured the business itself. And, um, how do you, like, you're not going on all these safaris and taking people around. Like, how do you, uh, deal with the actual logistics of it, um, and having people on the ground and, and all of that bit of it? So, um, on the business side, so I mean, we have to almost bifurcate the conversation when it comes to fair trade safaris between the business operations and the nonprofit, right? I mean, I mean, they're, right, they're right. both. Uh, on the business side, I mean, we have very, very strong uh, relationships and partnerships, and and actually uh, financial partnerships as well. With uh, we call them DMCs, destination management companies, or companies that are on the ground with vehicles, with guides, with the infrastructure. Um, so we have relationships with uh, companies in Tanzania, uh, which is mm -hmm. a huge safari destination. Um, and the company's headquartered in Arusha, Tanzania, which is the gateway city to the, the, the most famous national parks in Tanzania. So we have a very, very strong relationship with them. Um, there's mutual um, fiscal benefit of us both the, the company in Tanzania I'm talking about uh, right. doing very well and, and us doing well because there's a symbiotic relationship right we bring them the clients we help promote the, uh, the country as a destination and on the ground these companies are able to run a successful business and support local uh, employment etc cetera, etc cetera. so we have a, a really strong relationship with a safari company, a DMC, a destination management company in Tanzania right. that handles all of our clients who go to Tanzania. We have a strong relationship and actually I have financial ownership um, in a company in Nairobi, Kenya, that handles all of our uh, guests who go to Kenya. Similarly for Uganda and Rwanda, where the gorillas, uh, the mountain gorillas are, um, we have a company that we have a strong relationship with in that part of the, uh, of the continent. And then in South Africa, in Cape Town, <clears throat> our um, partner in Cape Town handles all of our clients who go to South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, and Mozambique, and Zimbabwe and Zambia. So all of Southern Africa, 
is right. covered by our South African partner. And then similarly for Mauritius, Seychelles, and Madagascar. So when it comes to um, having our clients be taken care of, yeah, it's, it's completely seamless. I mean, there's almost no... Um, there's almost no stumbling block between their their um, communication and relationship with me and my team here in America, and then when they land in wherever their uh, destination is in in Africa, it's just completely seamless. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so is um, so then your team is pretty much here only in the U.S. and then you're you're working through all of these partners. Correct. I mean, we do have some um, people in Africa. Now, now, let's make this clear. When I say my team, we don't we don't have any employees. Okay. So um, that's sort of the unique thing, and you know, it's and that's by design. Um, I wanted to make sure that we're so lean in our um, P and L, our GNA is so lean, our general and administrative costs. There's no payroll. Right. I don't have a payroll, so everybody who works, okay. uh, all of our our Service providers are 1099s. So okay. um, that doesn't mean we don't, have, we don't have the capability. We just don't have the heavy GNA overhead. Um, so, yeah, when I say our team, I'm talking about our partners, our 1099 contractors, and we have a whole army. I call it the army of good. We have lots of volunteers and ambassadors that go out there and help us with whatever we need, um, primarily in the marketing side, going out there and being the mouthpieces of Fairtrade Safari. So our, our team is primarily in America, right? Because that's where our uh, marketing activities take place. Most of our clients are from the U.S. or North American. Um, right. And then, yeah, we have the, those partnerships. And I have a small, uh, quote-unquote, team of contractors in, in Africa, but... Uh, most of them are, are through partnership, like you said. Yeah. And and it, I was looking on the site. It looks like you're the head of the army uh, of ambassadors there because your title is chief smiles officer. It's not CEO, it's chief smiles officer. Um, and I, and I like that. Um, and yet you have a good picture with it too, with you, with, with a big smile. Um, so w- when you kind of decided to start launching this, um, obviously you didn't get all of these partners all across, right? You had to start in, in one country, likely, um, and then you grew over time. Like, how did you think about that growth and, and kind of work through that methodically and add on all of those places? Was that driven by people coming to you in terms of clients? Or was this um, driven by you thinking like, oh, these are the places that people should go? So, uh, you know, I've been doing safari since I was eight years old, having grown up in Africa. So um, right. I'm very familiar um, Organically, so I didn't go out there and sort of do these familiarization trips to, like a lot of travel agents do. Uh, let's let me go to Spain and learn about Spain, or to South Africa and learn about South Africa. I've been organically going on safari since I was eight years old, so I knew everything that I needed to know about running a safari business just because I had been doing them from for like thirty years or thirty five years. Even and, and really, I, the first ten years being a lot, right? When you were eight to eighteen, correct? Yeah, in correct. country, okay. Correct, and and uh, eight to eighteen, obviously, most of my safaris were in the country where I was living in Tanzania. I hadn't right. really done safaris in South Africa or Botswana, etc. But yeah. I mean, once you uh, have that sort of organic way of 
understanding something, it comes very easily in, in, in a business context. Um, so for me to uh, start a safari company just wasn't as difficult as it would have been had I not had the 35 years of doing safaris just out of my own pleasure. Just that's, I love that. Um, right. But yeah, I started off in Tanzania and Kenya, which were the two countries that I lived in and had roots in. Um, I had I have friends that I went to school with that are now running Safari Cup. Uh, our DMC partners are some of those people that I grew up with, or uh, you know, that were in school with me. Or my mother was a teacher. I mean, just it's just interesting. Um, one of the um, founders and owners of, this, of a Safari company that we are partners with. My mother was his teacher, was his sixth grade oh, wow. teacher. Yeah. And he saw my name. He's, he's like, are you Mrs. Ketrapal's son? I'm like, yes. She, he's like, <laughs> I'm going to give you the most favorable pricing because she taught me how to read time on the clock. You know? Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, things like that, you know, I mean, <laughs> I had, I had these roots and, or, you know, someone who knows someone, right? So Tanzania and Kenya were the first two countries. And then we expanded to South Africa. Uh, and then southern, all of Southern Africa. So South Africa was our first entree into Southern Africa, then Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, Mozambique, Botswana, Namibia. Uh, and that was organically, you know, that, that became part of our uh, portfolio of destination countries over a period of time. Uh, but now we have uh, the ability to do safaris and trips to 14 countries in Africa. Yeah, it's, we've been at it for almost eight years now. So, uh, right. So, so what do you think then is like the next step for Freya Trade Safaris? Like, is there a, another set of countries uh, in in Africa that you want to attack, or is there another part of the world that that makes sense to to start doing something in? You know, uh, uh, you know, the the reason I bristle at that question is because I I don't really uh, live too uh, too far in the future, uh, just in general, and you know. I'm a meditator and I'm living the present and now, right? So um, it's hard for me to say what the future holds be- just because of my sort of mental DNA of how I live my life in general, uh, especially when I don't have anybody who uh, I'm beholden to in terms of providing a performa. What does your performa look like? What does your next quarter look like? Well, you know, we don't have any investors. We don't have any employees. I don't have to answer these questions to anyone. So I really am living this entrepreneurial uh, life, which is um, a combination of my entrepreneurial acumen along with my life philosophy of living in the moment. So uh, I literally run the company um, looking forward only as far as our, you know, our, our, our next safari guests. So we have some trips that are planned this summer. I'm not really looking past the summer. I mean, obviously, I have a, a marketing team that's doing all of these, you know, long-term pl- planning, and you know, that will bear fruit past the summer. But right. I really don't know. I mean, I think that uh, I want to try to amplify this company as much as possible. We just crossed uh, a one million dollar mark in terms of how much money we have raised, either directly through our business operations or through our, the contributions that, that are made by our um, clients, our, our in-kind donations, all the, we call them the impact dollars. So right. Fairtrade Safaris passed the $1 million mark of impact dollars raised 
about two years ago, pre-pandemic, we're about $1.2 million now. So that that's, was exciting. That's incredible. Congratulations. I, I wanna, yeah, thank you. And, and I, I want to try to hit $2 million by the end of next year and then onward and upward, you know, I mean, but yeah. in terms of opening up new countries or opening new, new product lines or, no, my, my goal is to just raise as much money as possible, any way possible for all the things that the army of good that I'm part of can have the resources to be able to do what they need to do. And they and, want and to And save do. as many elephants along the way. Correct. Elephants, wildlife, serve as many communities. Yeah. So, I mean, what started off as just wildlife conservation and, and protecting the animals has actually um, grown into community development and poverty alleviation. So I would say 50% of the dollars that we raise go towards uh, communities and, and poverty alleviation, which is inextricably linked to protecting animals. You can't right. protect animals and then leave the communities behind. Uh, yeah. So yeah, you're right. I mean, so yeah, save as many elephants and save as many cats of Africa and serve as many communities and uplift as many people as possible. Support for this podcast comes from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams since 1901. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, the business insurance experts. Okay, I can't let you go without asking you this one question because I, I feel like I've got the expert on safaris here. Um, and so any of our listeners that are thinking about going on a safari, like what is the one secret or trick or something like that that they need to know to make their experience that much better? Oh, wow. So can I, can I give you three tricks? Yes, yes, I'll absolutely take three. I didn't want to push you too much. I was only going to ask for one, but I'll take three for sure. All right, number one, get someone who understands the nuances of doing a safari. And, and, and going to Africa is unlike going to Europe because, you know, Europe, there's these, this familiarity, okay? If you go to Paris or to Lisbon or Madrid or whatever, Barcelona, there's a familiarity. It's still the West. When you go to Africa, you must, for example, I mean, one of the crown jewels of safaris is the great wildebeest migration of Serengeti and Masai Mara. And the migration, as the name suggests, that the wildlife animals move, they migrate. So if you're not in the right camp, in the right part of the, the, the national park, you're going to miss it completely. So you need to know some, you need to uh, hit your wagon to someone who understands the safari and has deep, deep experience on exactly where to book your accommodations. And that's number one. Number two, understand that, you know, this safaris are not that expensive. I mean, that's something that I really, uh, it infuriated, infuriated me because I was like, you know, safaris don't have, our safaris start at $3,000 per person. You know, when I say that to people, they're like, Really? I thought safaris are going to be ten or 15000 No, no, no. You just have to find the right person. So don't, don't let uh, this sort of high price point, which is actually completely contrived, dissuade you from looking into a safari package. And, but again, like, that comes with going with the right person that's not going to gouge you on the price. And the third thing is make sure that you get your... Uh, a lot of people think of Africa as a dangerous place, and I can't suspend that for a second i mean it's not it's not i mean when was the last time you heard of a, a lion attacking a tourist and we get millions and millions <laughs> of people who go to africa and people are like oh, i don't want to be eaten by i mean no 
please suspend <laughs> that for a second. And actually, you know, in that same vein, uh, it's a great destination for families with children. My kids have been going to Africa since they were one and a half years old. So um, they've been, they're 11 and eight now, and they've been to Africa five times already on safari. So wow. it's, a, it's a family destination. It doesn't have to be very expensive, but find someone who really knows what they're doing and have done it many times and um, can really guide you in the way that you deserve to be. I, I love it. Okay. So uh, on that uh, on that note, where can listeners find you uh, if they're now ready to book a safari? Because man, I, I'm ready to go too. <laughs> um, well, it's it's uh, the company name, fairtradesafaris.com. So it's fair, F-A-I-R, trade, T-R-A-D-E, safaris, which is plural, .com. That's our website. And that's really the best starting point. There you go. Um, it has been fantastic having you on the podcast. This has been so fascinating. I'm going to be doing some research uh, on safaris right after we get off uh, off this podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Sanjay. It was an honor. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Side Hustle to Small Business podcast, powered by Hiscox. To learn more about how Hiscox can help protect your small business through intelligent insurance solutions, visit hiscox.com. That's H-I-S-C-O-X dot com. And if you have a story you want to hear on this podcast, please visit hiscox.com slash share your story. I'm your host, Sanjay Parikh. You can find me on Twitter at at Sanjay, that's S-A-N-J-A-Y, or on my website at sanjayparikh.com. 